Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the musical that the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe does not want you to see. <laughs> Sorry, no, I have to try that again. Sorry. Welcome to the podcast that the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe does not want you to hear. <laughs> there we go. I did it better that time. That was great, Paul. Yes, I've been thinking all week on what it was going to be. There were a lot of options for this one because this musical has a lot of stuff in it. There's a few things I'm really excited about this week on Monkeys and Playbills. Absolutely. Obviously, number one is that we're talking about Starmites. The mighty Starmites. Not to be confused with Termites. And then the second thing I'm really excited about is that we are joined by our very first guest. It's extremely exciting. Ryan Siegel is a friend of ours from... Early on in our careers, um, even childhood for you, Jill. Mm-hmm. He's a theatrical producer. He's a hilarious dude. He is a fan of musicals. He's also a city planner these days, which is really cool. We're super excited to have him on board. Oh, and more than all of that, in playing the Broadway musicals that flopped game at parties, he is typically the king. Yes, I would agree with that. So, ladies and gentlemen, the man, the legend, Ryan Siegel. Oh wow, that's a, that's a lot of pressure, and I uh, I don't know where to start. I was like, are they gonna introduce me? Do I have jokes ready? I like, I already had one where I about the Marvel comic universe and how I yes. like it was just like a few weeks ago when I realized that the Fantastic Four and the Avengers are different things. <laughs> so that was a, a big moment in my life. Wait, I'm sorry. So it's not the same four heroes. Well, because all these Avengers movies were coming out. Yes. And just to let you know that this is a dream come true to be on a podcast. Oh, well, we're so excited to have you. Oh, it is a dream come true to have you here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. And this is my audition to be the third host. Right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I'm happy to do it. I bring zero intersectionality to the group. <laughs> In fact, I think I bring down the diversity. So <laughs> I'm not sure if you want me, but. Well, we're so excited to get started. So, without further ado, here is our hot take on Starmites. Let's talk about where this opened. I'm so excited. Because the, the theater is very fascinating. Woo! Okay. Previews began at the Criterion <laughs> Center Stage Right Theater. Totally. March 24th, 1989. The show officially opened... April 27th, 1989, and it closed June 18th, 1989, after 35 previews and 60 performances. Like a respectable run for shows that we've covered so far. Yeah, it's pretty average. 1989, so I guess it's older than all of us. Jill, did, are you, do you have some months on it? Uh, I actually was born in the middle of the run. I was born. I was born May sixth, eighty nine. So I was alive for a, about six weeks of this run. You heard Starmites was open, and you were like, "I gotta see it. I gotta get out of here. I have to see it. I have to get out." And for me, September eighty nine. So you know, when one Starmites closes, Ryan arrives. <laughs> I would love to address what was happening just after you were born later in our show. Okay. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay. So tell me a bit about this theater. Criterion? Criterion? This was the, uh, as far as I know, this was the premiere show for the new Criterion Theater. That's my understanding as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In typical fashion, I think it became a movie theater. Probably a, probably a CBS recording studio, then a movie theater. Yeah, and then in, in the 80s, it was then converted back to a theater. But I think they turned it into two separate theaters. Yeah. Oh. I think they, def they split up the thing and they turned it into two. And this was the opening show. And then I think right after Starmites or shortly after the Roundabout Theater Company took it over and operated it until 1999 when they shut it down. Yes. I, I believe it's now a Toys R Us. Uh, it's a gap now. It was a Toys R Us. Oh my god. There's a gap now. That's right, because Toys R Us is done. The other thing about this theater is that it's teeny tiny. Yes. 499 seats. Just slips into being a Broadway theater. What I saw, it was it's it's a postage stamp of a stage. It's a tiny theater. Right? So should we talk about the synopsis? Yeah, I would love to. There's a lot that happens in this show. And our favorite game to play is Paul, you try to. I, I said the word synopsize, which is probably not a word, but... I would love to synopsize <laughs> this musical. And Ryan, feel free to jump in and help me because yeah. I think I picked up on what was going on here. 
It's worth noting, this is probably, not probably, this is definitely the oldest show we've covered on this podcast so far. That's right. 1989. So gathering the information for it was, um, was very challenging. Searching for a bootleg of Star Mites was, a, was an experience. Um, no one should be filming in a theater, but please do so we can watch it but 30 years you. later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the things I do as, as a friend of the podcast. The point of all this is the bootleg itself being recorded in 1989 in a, um, in a theater, presumably by a camera sitting on someone's shoulder, is that the quality was not incredible, so it was sometimes hard to understand. So as I synopsize this, that might be contributing a little bit to my understanding of the show. That said, here we go. Here's what I understand the plot of Star Mites to be. It's about a, uh, a teenage girl who loves, loves, loves comic books. And she's unhappy with her mom. And then she gets sucked into her favorite comic book, which is the comic book Star Mites. Mm -hmm. And then she meets the Star Mites. And then she meets more people. There's a lot of, a lot of meeting. They, she meets everyone. <laughs> There's so many introductions. Yeah. Ryan, help me out. Well, I, can't, I honestly can't remember what comes next. Well, it's, it's basically a, a journey through... <laughs> it's, a, it's a classic hero's journey. <laughs> it is. I would... Yeah. Yeah, she, she meets people. There's um, yeah. some sort of overall evil character. Uh, Sha, Shakara. Sha, Shaka, Shaka Khan. Shakra. Yeah. yeah. But I guess the, the queen of this land is sort of the... The diva. The, the diva. And she has a minion of what they're called banshees. Yeah. Very uh, tough women. Yeah. Tough banshee women. Mm -hmm. AKA the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Anyways, except four. <laughs> yeah. Except four. But yes. If the Sanderson sisters were four, they'd be the banshees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the diva has a daughter named Bizarbarella. Bizarbra. So Ele Eleanor is the girl that falls into this, into her comic book. Bizarbra is the diva's daughter, who is also played by the actress playing Eleanor. Yeah, that was that was very confusing for me. That took a um, took me a while to figure out. Eleanor, who they refer to as Milady, who is the hero of the comic books, falls in love with the space punk, space punk, the leader of the Star Knights. The original space punk. However, in order to defeat the the cruelty. Chakra's cruelty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the diva's daughter must marry someone immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the cruelty is a physical object, isn't it? It's like a weapon. Yeah, which is a. And then it turns out it's a guitar. It's electric guitar, like a, the power of rock and roll. But Bizarra's too ugly, so uh, the diva trades her body with Eleanor's because the space punk's <laughs> already in love with Eleanor, so he marries. Yeah. He thinks is Eleanor, but is actually Bizarra. And then there's a there's a twist. So for those of you who are um, who haven't seen um, or listened to Star Mites yet or read the script, turn this off right now and go do that. Mm -hmm. Because the twist is there's this lizard bean that's been kind of around the whole time. Yes. Oh my god, this lizard! And the lizard bean is actually Chaka Khan, right? Yes. Chakra, but yes, essentially. Yes. Chakra, yes, my, my mistake. <laughs> yeah, is actually the big bad, and then they all have to work together to stop him, and the power of rock and roll. Yes. Yeah. And do up. And do and do up. There's lots of do up. And, and then at the very end, there's a uh, twisty turn where Bizarrella goes back to be a human, and um, what's her name? Our main character here, Eleanor, stays in the comic book land. Yes. Okay. I think that's what it's about. That's it. It's a, it's a hero's journey. I, I wrote at one point. Is this Wizard of Oz? <laughs> is this Peter Pan? How did, how did we do, Jill? Did we miss anything? Did we misrepresent anything? I was about to be like, here, I'll read you this synopsis from Concord Theater, theatricals. Yes. But like, and I was about to be like, oh, it's pretty long. But then what happened just just then was pretty long. So, <laughs> so. You add a third, you add a guest and it's going to be this podcast. Okay. Yeah. Well, essentially you got it all. Great. That's good news. The, the only thing I'll say is that from this, um, this synopsis that I found on this licensing agent's website, it it says that the villains are Bowie-esque, which I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then they also said something like, the Banshee warriors are like Destiny's Child. And then they love, like they're hungry for boy bands. Those are the only like things that you really missed. <laughs> <laughs> if I could pause you, because 
Destiny's Child was not around in 1989. Exactly. <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense. I think we should note that this script has been revised many times, as far as I know. Yes. Right. That's right. Yeah. The professional version is a 2010 version, but there's also two school versions available for licensing. There's like a... Yeah, like a junior and like an intermediate or something, but it's not called that, but it's like... There's, yeah, three levels of Starmites available for licensing. So we're, we're talking about Starmites <laughs> Pro, really. That's what we're familiar with. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit then. Let's segue into talking, because I want to talk about the author of this show, Barry Keating, a little mm. bit. I can't wait. Tell us everything. Okay. So he's a very, I did some research on him. He's a very cool man, very fascinating man. He's um, still active and still very passionate about Starmites specifically. <laughs> he's been active as a... Um, as a writer and director in theater since the mid-70s, he went to college with famed Meatloaf collaborator Jim Steinem. Oh. Jim Steinem, who wrote um, Bad Out of Hell, wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart. Barry Keating was actually involved in a couple of the, um, in both versions of Bad Out of Hell, including the 2018 one, as a creative consultant. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, that is really fascinating. Yeah, so, so he's a college friend of um, Jim Steinem. He um, was also very involved in the Muppet Babies universe, <gasps> which is uh, which is uh, far be it for me to um, to make fun of anyone for making a creative living. If the Muppet Babies called me up and wanted me to work on it, I'd be there in a second. Absolutely, no judgment. So he's written several he's written several Muppet Babies books. He um, collaborated with Jim Henson on a Muppet Babies Stadium musical. Amazing. And also, apparently, he directed Penn and Teller's first stage show. <laughs> But I can't find any more information other than one bio about that. Yes, because his Broadway credits are just Starmites. Just Starmites, absolutely. Um, he continues to be very active in children's entertainment. He actually runs a a Starmites um, Starmites puppet parties. Oh, I watched it. I watched all the videos. <laughs> yeah, isn't that, isn't that fascinating? This is this seems to be his big thing these days. Is um, They're very sweet providing um, personalized puppet parties to families around the, um, the New York area. That's cool. I want one. Yeah. Unlike a lot of the people we've discussed on this podcast who have really kind of lived in the Broadway machine, mm -hmm. especially if we're talking about someone like Andrew Lippa, who we discussed last week, Barry Keating's really done a ton of stuff, has had a wide and varied career, is a very fascinating man, and as far as we know, continues to be very active in researching all things Starmites. So if he listens to this podcast... Hello, Barry Keating. You're a fascinating man. Good for you for having a hell of a career. What's Jim Steinem like? Is he cool? So Barry Keating wrote the music and lyrics for this. And co-wrote the book, I believe? Exactly, with Stuart Ross. Yep. The music director and the, and the dance arrangements were done uh, by Henry Aronson, who has assisted and MD'd, like, extensively. Yep, he's had a hell of a career. Yes, so much stuff. And then it was orchestrated by James McElwain, but I'm not seeing any other Broadway credits for James McElwain. And then vocal arrangements, and then the associate MD was Diane Adams. Uh, vocal arrangements for A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Oh, yeah. Okay, well go. done, Diane. I'm not sure if there's any other context that needs... Oh, other than to say that it should be kept in mind, this is a... An original musical, an original story. This is the first original story that we have covered on this podcast. Mm -hmm. With quite a journey to development. Like yes. was, I think it took seven or eight years to get it to, to Broadway. Yep, you're right. So I, I think it had a, a cute little off-Broadway run in like 87. 87, yeah, exactly. And since um since its Broadway run, it continues to receive um it receives community theater productions and uh and school productions mostly all over the uh all over North America. I think it's a really popular high school title, actually. Yeah, that's not crazy. And even university, but yeah. but I mean, a quick YouTube would find a ton of high school productions, and I, you can see why. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about why. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the book. So, despite all of this context, this show did not do well for itself on Broadway. But why on earth? Why on earth? What went wrong? What in inner space could have possibly gone wrong? One of my first notes is, um, inner space is a dumb name. Yeah, it is. And that's a very personal pet peeve of mine is super on-the-nose sci-fi names. Right. Something like, oh, I'm going to get my, get my space coke and go for a space run. Yeah. You know what I mean? Go for an <laughs> asteroid run in inner space. And you must hate every single bit of this show. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
kind of came around on me a few times. There was, I was enjoying myself, then I was grumpy, then I was really enjoying myself. <laughs> if you're seeking nuance and subtlety in space names. This is not it, yeah. <laughs> it's the work for you. So let's go one at a time and just say a few things that we think about the book. So why doesn't our guest Ryan go first? I think it's zippy. It's to the point. Yeah. Oh, zippy. I think it takes us on a, on a, on a journey and... and... It's not the best journey. It's a hell of a journey. <laughs> it's it a is. hell of a journey, but but what it does is it really moves us into songs quickly, which is why I like a musical. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They do a good job of that. I do have my my big issue is how we go from her bedroom into into inner space. Yes, totally. Jumping, you know, a bit ahead here, but like <laughs> literally the stagehands just like moved things <laughs> off the stage and she was there. <laughs> I, I think we need to talk about yeah. the stagehands when we get to, like, reviewing the performances. Because, man, the stagehands are all over the place on this stage. Yes. But it's, it's, it sort of, for me, just speaks to, you know, not much uh, explanation of why, we, why we've ended up here. Yeah, there's a certain, like, level of suspension of disbelief that we all carry with ourselves into the theater. But at some point, like, we do need some help. And we got no help in, in that moment. No. If I was going to talk about the book, and I kind of started talking about this already when I talked about Inner Space being a dumb name and not liking derivative sci-fi names, I think that this book, this is ostensibly a comic book. If this was actually a comic book that I was reading, I'd be really grumpy and I wouldn't be very happy with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels like, this is cut into the point right away, but I think this is a problem with the book specifically. It feels like someone, it feels like writing about a comic book for people who have never actually read a comic book, but just have kind of had described to them what it's like. Sure. Yes. And in addition to that, it doesn't make me as a non-comic book reader want to read any comic books. Right. And it also doesn't invite me into the world in a way that I don't feel like ostracized. Like mm -hmm. it, it's just not a very inviting world, I guess. It's a sort of a paradox because it, it, it creates a, yeah, there's like, it creates a world that we're expected to know, but doesn't give you any detail. That's astute, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it feels familiar. Like, yeah, I know inner space, but you've also like been like, they've literally given us not a, like a, a lick of detail of what inner space is and we're just here <laughs> yes, for the adventure. totally, totally. So it's like, it's like welcoming and alienating at the same time. It's like, should I know this world? Like. Exactly. But at the same time, it's also so familiar. Like, it's like. Like to an average, you know, I don't read comic books. Like this seems like a comic book world. Mm -hmm. Seems nice. The well, there's one thing that really bothers me about this book. So Ryan, you talked a little bit about how you appreciate that we get into the songs quickly. Mm -hmm. What I don't appreciate is how we get into the songs, because mm. <laughs> it's usually like a "Wait, who are you?" and then they're <laughs> like, "I'm the big like I'm just making up the song, but mm -hmm. but like they always then just launch into like it's like a question, like, "Well, what is she like then? Who's this person like?" And then they sing like a nice song, and it's sort of just mm. like <laughs> it's like a formula. It absolutely is. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Whereas like. I guess in a musical, typically, it's like when the character can't speak anymore, they're supposed to sing, right? That's how they... Yeah. Whereas this is just like, when we don't know who it is, we just, we just find out. When the character yeah. is asked a question, they must sing. It's like... yeah. They sing. Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's a convention of inner space. Like, maybe this is something we need to buy into. Oh. Suspend your disbelief. We answer all questions in yeah. inner space and so on. I will say, there's, there's some funny quips, like as far as... If the if there's a big if there's a lot of challenges with the overall structure of the book, like on a on a micro level, I thought there were some funny moments. I actually laughed out loud a few times. The diva's a funny character, and I and I don't know if it's the book or if it's the actress who played her. I I was reading this uh, the 2010 script along with my viewing, Very good. and I did point out one stage note that says this, this following diva speech is only needed to cover costume change. If you don't need the time, feel free to cut this until the entrance. <laughs> So, I mean, like, <laughs> some of those quips might not have been, you know, very Keatings, but I, I understand the actress was along from the beginning of this of development of the show. So, you know, in, in, in essence, right. it's a devised piece, maybe. Maybe. I will say, as, as someone who's um, put up a few shows at this point, there's been many times when I wish, when it was, it's very obvious in a script, many shows where it's very obvious in a script, 
that that is the case, that this was put here to cover for a massive scene change or costume change or something. And I wish that there had been that note. Just say it. Of like, hey, when you when you get this at the yeah. regional level and your tech requirements have changed, yeah. you can just cut this. We don't need it. No, it's like anytime basically two characters cross the stage while the curtain is down. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that was a scene change script scene. That's a convention. So about this book, if we were to speculate, if we were to, um, I don't know, think of an amount of playbills and then measure it against an amount of monkeys... What would everyone think? What what amount of monkeys would you measure it against? Just to pull something out of thin air. I give the original 89 script a hearty 5.5 Ooh, 5.5. So it's like five playbills and one understudy slip. <laughs> <laughs> and I would take away one playbill for the 2010 script that modernizes it with things like You Go Girl and like... Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it you. doesn't. We Does it actually? That. It's a bit contemporary. There was like one sort of like space pun with Wikipedia. I can't remember what yes. it was, but oh, there, was, wow. there was a few things where I was like, I like this in 89. It was, you know, firmly rooted in 89. And yes. I don't think it needed a, a, a 2010 zhuzh. Uh, oh, yeah, it definitely so doesn't. Funny. I would say a, a solid three out of 10 playbills with one understudy slip. I like that a lot, Ryan. With one understudy slip mm-hmm. added um, for the option to cut a, to cut a speech if you don't actually need it for a costume change. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a fantastic thing to do. <sighs> I love that. So out of 10 playbills, I'm going to give this book four and a half monkeys because I found the New York Times review that Mel Gusso wrote. Former friend of the podcast, Mel Gusto. Yes, who is inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame or whatever it's called. So in 87, he reviewed the off-Broadway production, um, and he said about the book, quote, The book by Mr. Keating and Stuart Ross is more cluttered than Mr. Keating's original and spins the story off on an irresolute tangent. And I agree. And that's why I think it deserves like a four, four and a half. Yeah, there's, there's a nugget there. There's a good story there. The last, the last thing I'll say on this, this just occurred to me. The reason I don't like this book is because if this plot happened in a comic book, if I picked up a comic book and it was all about, oh, so-and-so has to get married and we're all running around and having wacky hijinks, I'd be so grumpy. Like, I want to see some friggin' space battles. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm all for the power of rock and roll, but let's fight with the power of rock and roll. So it's a bad comic book. It's a bad comic book, in my opinion. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me as a comic book fan who's also a fan of musical theater. It doesn't invite in Jill, who's a fan of musical theater and not a fan of comic books. Ryan seems okay with it. As a piece of nostalgia, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can all agree that we like that part of it, because I certainly do. Well, speaking of nostalgia, let's take a look at the music. Yay! Okay, I need to... <laughs> I need to tell you what my notes are for this. Yeah, please. There's two There's two notes that I have for the music. Okay, go. One, it slaps. Two, I love it. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> it's... That's pretty much it about the music. There's a lot of fun music in this. It's so catchy. Yeah. Ugh. I can't. I can't with the Starmites theme, their theme. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I agree, Jill. The music friggin' slaps. There's a lot of good. Yeah. There's um, but there was like a song I was singing along to. It was great. I've been singing where the starmites, mm-hmm. the mighty starmites for the mighty all starmites. week. It yeah. has been in my head. Ugh. It's fantastic. It's not written to be sung by a high school, believe it or not, because the melody. And I am no expert in music, Paul. So you can you can interrupt me here. But the melody is in the like tenor falsetto. And all the other lines are not the melody. So when you get a high school production with boys that can't hit those notes, but can get the baritone notes, all you get is the, like, the harmony. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I watched a lot of high school productions, <laughs> and you didn't get the melody. Oh, yeah, because it's, like, quite high. You got to sort of suspend your disbelief that the, <laughs> that the, that the melody's there. Like, that's intense to find in the most, um, in the highest of professional settings, much less at the high school level. Mm-hmm. Banger after banger. Some beautiful ballads. Beautiful ballads. The diva song. Oh my gosh. I'm obsessed. The diva song is just is just crying for a cabaret performance. I think when we're finally allowed to all do a cabaret performance in person again, I'm going to encourage someone to bring it out. 
It's a it's a great number. Fantastic. What about the lyrics? Less good. <laughs> 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 I have a note here that just says, "Oh, the lyrics for Beauty Within." Period. Oh my god! Yeah. Ugh. And it sucks because that song is so beautiful, but the lyrics. Oh god. Going back to my favorite song, that superhero girl, right at the beginning. Oh, oh that yes. is a good song. Yes. And I think that's in a lot of rap. I think I think you can still I think there still are people that sing that one. I believe it. I believe it's it. It's a good song. It's so good. I, I yeah, it's just nostalgic and amazing. Lyrics are lyrics are clunky mm-hmm. and involve a lot of this is who I am. This is what we're doing. This is who I am. Yeah. I am who is this, you know? Yes. Yeah, it's it's simple. It's um there's no rhyme. No rhymes. Internal or <laughs> or external. <laughs> they use the same word a lot. Like there are rhymes in that Yes. The future are we rhymes yeah. with the future are we. Yeah, they rhyme with themselves a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But is that intentional? Is that meant just because this is the world we're in? It's a you know, a childlike world. They wouldn't be spitting rhymes like uh Right, I guess so, sure. If we're talking about a strength of the book being that it zips us from song to song, I would say a big weakness is that once we hit those songs, the action just stops dead in its tracks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're booting from song to song, and then once we hit a song, we stay. Yes, we get it. You're the Star Mites. You're the Space Punk. Yes, we understand. It's hard to be a diva. This is very fun. And a song like that is okay for a song or two in an entire musical. But man, I can't think of a single song that actually moves the action forward instead of is just... This is who I am. There's a, a wedding number. Oh, oh the yeah. wedding number. That was yes. a hell of a number. As the resident uh, 2010 script updater, I will let you know that there were a few additional raps added. Oh, to good. I was just thinking there needs to be a, few, a more rap was my next note. Oh, don't. Don't say that. <laughs> a few of the Starmites introduced themselves with, with a rap at first. And I should note that the Starmite characters' names have changed. Oh no, I like their names. Their names in the original, this is very important. Our main characters, the Starmites, are... Ak-Ak Ackerman. Ak-Ak Ackerman, which is a hell of a name. Herbie Herbie Harrison. I love it. Which is a very normal name. The Space Punk, who we've referred to several times now. Oh, and there's one more. Um, Dazzle Razzledorf. Rumple Teaser, Mungo Jerry. <laughs> um, yeah. Ready? Yep, hit me. So yeah. So the Starmites are Space Punk. He's the hero. Mm-hmm. Terrific. There is Ak-Ak Hackerax. No. Oh. <laughs> Diggity Razzle Dazzle. Why? 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 Which used to be Dazzle Razzledorf. And then... Which is way better. And then Herbie Harrison is now Sup Sup Sensaboy. No. 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 And no. Sensaboy is spelt B-O-I. No. Barry. <laughs> Do you think it was like a conversation where they said, we need to make this relatable to kids these days, and we think these names are relatable? Yeah. <sighs> but they have to acknowledge what this piece is, and this piece is like a spoof, and it's this piece is... I mean, to me, the draw is the nostalgia of it. Yeah. And so when you rename these characters to be more 90s or like early 2000s, it's just like, it's gone. I'm gone. Like, you've lost me. It's, yeah. <sighs> I'm sad. And I'm mostly sad about Akak Ackerman because I think I went to Hebrew school with him. <laughs> you went to his bar mitzvah at some point? <laughs> yeah. I think we took, to- I think we took bar mitzvah classes together. <laughs> The Ackermans are a nice family. <laughs> oh. Did either of you notice how, besides, like, even if we take away how how cats-like the names of the Starmites are, but did you hear in that overture, that Jellicle bit? Yeah, absolutely. This is a hell Like, whatever it is. I don't know. but Which makes sense for the, for the time. We're in 1989. Cats is just crushing mm-hmm. it left and right at this point. Like everything has a little bit of cats in it. Yeah. I have I have no trouble understanding that and believing that because it was just in everyone's head. Mm-hmm. It was the zeitgeist. Yeah. It was the decade. <laughs> it, was the... it was absolutely zeitgeist. We got 10 playbills. How many monkeys are you going to give it? I'll give it eight monkeys. It's Ooh. fun. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, wow, wow. It is for what it is. It's, it's fun for what it is. It's, 
it's camp, it's pastiche, it's mm-hmm. bouncy and eighties and doo-woppy and a bit of punk. Like it's, it's not, it's not offending me. I, I mean, I've listened <laughs> to it in the car before. It's fun. All right, eight. I would, I would be less generous. I would give the music seven, mm-hmm. but subtract one for the lyrics, which are super frustrating to me, and I would settle on six. Okay. I agree with you on the lyrics. I, I, I'll give you that. I'm going to give it a seven and a half, but I would like to subtract a full point for the direct ripoff of Proud Mary background vocals. Oh, yeah, right. And the choreo too, right? Which we'll get to. Part of me is like, you you were being innovative in so many ways. Like, why do we need to do this again? It's a full, it's an homage, <laughs> but that like... I mean, then you'd have to subtract 40 points from, like, Joseph yes. and the Elvis bit. Oh, absolutely. And I will. And even the diva, the, the diva is very Elvisy though, in a way. Because doesn't she have this thing at the end, toward the end of her song where she's, like, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of yeah. talking like Elvis? Yeah, I need to remove a point because we don't know who we're homaging. Someday soon, I would like to collect all the ratings we've done so far. Because based on those ratings, I think we averaged a seven, mm-hmm. if we're going to take an average. I think this is like just below freaking sideshow as far as the music music Yeah, I think so. I think we're just under. (laughs) Well, let's talk about this creative team. Let's talk about the direction, the choreo, etc. This production was directed by Larry Carpenter, who really doesn't have uh, very many Broadway credits, but I would say the big one would be that he assisted Gower Champion on 42nd Street. So that's a big Z. Sure. And then Choreo by Michelle Asaf, who only did this on Broadway. Yeah. Assistant choreographer was T.C. Charlton. And that is the extent of the creative team. (laughs) Except for, as we mentioned before, Henry Aronson, who was the MD, and this was the start of a really cool career for, Mm -hmm. um, for him. So... Those are our players. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do we know about Larry Carpenter? Not much other than he helped with 42nd Street. Even though it's only um, his only Broadway credit, or his only significant Broadway credit is Star Mites. He's um, booted around his whole life as um, artistic director and associate artistic directors of, um, of regional theaters throughout the States. Mm-hmm. Done a little bit of um, little bit of adapting, a little bit of writing, a little bit of um, television directing. Okay. So I think he he's a, a, service, a serviceable director. He's had a heck of a career. Not all about Broadway. Absolutely. Yeah. I think his direction, I, I can't find, I don't, I didn't notice any fault in his direction here. Oh. Paul. Yes. Paul. Yes. Again, this is yes. not my expertise, but the staging alone of the, of the, uh, of the transformation from real life into the comic book. <laughs> You, did, you didn't have any issues with the, a, flaw, a flawless direction? Maybe Paul like sneezed at that part and his eyes were closed and he, yeah. he missed how bad that was. I think that, I think that was when I was writing down Inner Space as a dumb name on my notes. Yeah, yeah. Probably. probably. But the direction is flawless. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what are... Okay, so uh, a theme for me, if people have listened to this podcast before is they'll notice that I don't usually blame the problems with the direction solely on the director because there's so many things at play. And I think that a big problem with this show is not necessarily the direction, but the set with which they were given to work with, or should I say lack thereof. And so you sort of, the bad direction is exposed in just a completely different way. It's like left, you know, they're hung out to dry, basically. Well, for a comic book world, it's pretty static. They don't really go anywhere. Yep. Yeah, they right? They bring on this sort of, I mean, yeah, once one set piece that sort of opens and closes. It's not a not a world that's been created, that's for right. sure. Yeah. And of course, there's a lot you can do direction-wise, but I just yeah. feel like maybe with the size of the stage and also the audience configuration, it's like, oh, you could have done this in the round and that would have been really cool. Yeah. Or alleyway or whatever Mm -hmm. no it's it's a bit static but it lets it lets the actors play yeah the diva in particular gets to play a lot medium feelings across the board (laughs) 
Yeah, well, so the, the direction may be one of the um, one of the big challenges that uh, that was facing this production, hey? Now, one anecdote I heard about this is that they lost a week of rehearsal oh. before opening. Oh. Because there was a flood in the new Criterion Theater and all of the music got no. damaged oh, and it was no. hand notated. So they had to spend a week re-notating the whole score oh for the orchestra. That's a straight up nightmare, actually, yeah. They lost a week of rehearsal oh, before wow. opening. Oh, wow. Oh, that's horrible. That being said, it was also in development for eight years. Yeah, so. okay, fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so out of out of ten playbills, how many monkeys is Larry Carpenter and his direction work getting? For me, it's gonna be five monkeys minus two for that transition. Yeah, fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree with that completely. What a moment. I mean I've I've seen many theater productions of Wizard of Oz with better transformations. Yep. And that included when I was in a unitard <laughs> as the tornado. Yep. Yep. I was, I was, so, I was so happy to be in my, my peaceful little world, thinking I was going to give it a nice, um, a nice six or uh, maybe even seven monkeys, um, for not noticing anything. You guys have opened my eyes. <laughs> Let's say five. I'm going to give it a nice. I'm going to hedge my bets and give it five out of ten. What about you, Jill? I'm going to give it a five, but I'm going to minus a point because there was one moment, maybe about midway through the play, where, oh no, it was in act two when um, the space punk is singing that like song. Like about Milady? Well, it's a cute song. Yep, absolutely it is. It's a great song, but during the song, there's this thing that I could tell the director was like, oh, we need to shake this up a bit, uh, diva, cross <laughs> down left, and... Uh, star- uh, space punk you just counter up stage and jump on this block like it just bothered me so much i don't know why and i will never forget it and so Incredible. i have to deduct a point i think i landed at what four it's not great but it's four is good what about the choreo i hated the choreo we're all on the same page <laughs> did i did i do it better that time i have i have a i have a, a choreo question okay and I, I don't know if it falls to the direction the book the score or the choreo but there is a moment titled in the script as the conuptial dance of spousal arousal. The spousal arousal, totally. And it's, it's I think it's on everyone that um, is described again in the script as a Martha Graham primitive nightmare. <laughs> it felt not correct. <laughs> like it didn't get the Martha Graham part? No, I wasn't worried about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> no good. It was it was of its time, and now it was before I was alive. Yes. So I, I know that you know mm-hmm, we've come a long mm-hmm. way, but it didn't it didn't it, ra- it raised some it raised some eyebrows in twenty twenty. Oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah. It was not the not the best thing in the world. There's a lot of things actually about the show. I shouldn't say a lot of things, but there are certain things about the yep. show that really do raise eyebrows, and you have to think of it in that context. Like they they talk about how it's a feminist musical, and then I'm watching it, you know, and going. Maybe in 89, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But how things have changed and shifted, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that being said, I mean, it, it is nice to see a comic book hero lead that's a woman. Yes, I would agree with that. Absolutely. It's a super big thing, yeah. But the, the primitive dance seemed seemed off given the uh, the mostly lily whiteness of the cast. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other, the only other note I took for the choreo was that the um, the jitterbug number, the the cruelty there, seemed um, pretty pretty underwhelming and kind of felt like, oh, it's the midway through Act Two. We should we need to pop in a big old Broadway dance number. Yeah. Um, felt very out of place, very bizarre, and I don't think many people in the cast can dance. Is that crazy? I actually got that impression as well. Like I feel like I could have I could have hung with the cast. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like with some work, I could um, I could hang with the cruelty dance, <laughs> and that's no good. That's not a good thing. Like we also can we also blame the size of the stage? Yeah, I think so. I think we can. Yeah, I just thought it was a little bit basic. Yeah, a little bit like this choreographer seemed to take all the clues from the music spoofs more than anything. So like all of the choreography felt to me like it could have been like backup dancers. And there wasn't really anything yeah. to forward the story, but I guess that's also on the lyrics a little bit. Exactly. The music's not doing any of that. Yeah. Like it just, there wasn't much to work with as far as like making it anything big and exciting. And of course the space too, like Ryan said, doesn't help you at all. 
Jillian is just not here for the mixed homages, is what I'm getting. It's the, you're right. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I want clarity in an homage, thank you. What world are we in? <laughs> yeah, inner space, outer space. Was there anything like distinctly 80s to it? A little. There was like a lot of snapping and walking. And to me, that's kind of 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We're coming out of a time that is choreographically very exciting. Like, I think at this time, like, Chorus Line was running on Broadway still, like, nearing the end of its run. But people had all seen that really athletic movement Mm -hmm. and that really, like, you know, the late 70s, early 80s aerobic stuff that was really exciting. And I think... And as we discussed, Cats was a big old thing right now. Yeah, Cats is there and that's really innovative. And so I, I just feel like it's kind of... It's really difficult to compete with all of that happening. If you can't beat them, <laughs> step touch. <laughs> oh, that's what it felt like. Well, and this is going to be especially interesting when we talk about what it was up against in the Tony Awards this year, hey? Yes. Yeah. Um, which we'll get to in a second. Keep that in your head because it was up against some um, big old dancey things. Okay, so out of um, 10 playbills, how many monkeys are we all giving this choreo? Like four? I'd give it four. I always get stressed. I get stressed out when the cast is doing a dance that looks like I could do. Is kind of how I <laughs> stressed out. How I judge it. I guess you know, like <laughs> I don't. I, I feel like we're not in good hands. Right. And for the same reason, I give it a a four because I'd like to do the choreo because I could do it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm in the world. I'm welcome. And now I'm. What I'm struggling with is whether to deduct for or add for for the primitive nightmare dance. <laughs> Because everyone's at fault. So maybe, maybe I have to subtract one from every category for that primitive nightmare moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's, that's that a good idea. Yeah. Just to balance it all out. A minus one across the board for the, the dance of spousal arousal. I give, yeah, I give the choreo like a four, four and a half. Should we talk about the design? Let's talk about the design. Woo. What a design. Whew. What a hell of a design. I mean, a lot of pyrotechnics. Yeah. Which was kind of delightful. We love fog. I wrote pyro is cool twice in my notes. Yeah. There you go. There were some kapows. It's very, um, like Mad, Mad Maxi, eh? Like lots of, yeah, spikes and fringes and yeah. Yeah, like the, the Banshees had some sort of dominatrixy yeah, moments. Yeah, totally. Yeah. In production photos I've seen. Um, Here, let me list off who we've got for the team. Yeah, please do. Please do. So for scenic design, we have Lowell Detweiler, costume design by Susan Hirschfeld, lighting design by Jason Kantrowitz, uh, sound design by John Kilgore, and hair design by John Quaglia. So some of these folks went on to do a decent amount of Broadway stuff after this. I'd like to point out Jason Jason Kantrowitz, who did the lights, also did the lights for title of show. That's right. Which um, from which this podcast gets its name. Exactly. Yay. That's pretty cool. Thanks, yeah, Jason. Totally. And then this um the hair designer, John Quaglia, did a lot of work as well. Pre-Star Mites. Did yeah. a lot of work before <laughs> this, hey? Yeah. Peaked at Star Mites, perhaps. Yeah, it seems. <laughs> it did Star Mites, then he was done. Yeah, it's like I've, my work here is done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing more to be said. So we all agree that the pyrotechnics are exciting. Absolutely. That the fog is cool. The set just, it couldn't have been so immersive. It could have been so delightful. I yeah. know. You would have hoped, right? Why did I write those costumes make me sick? <laughs> I think you have to look closer at them because they're they're good. They're of their time. Yeah, I, and I wrote except I like the Starmites costumes themselves. Like again, that's the nostalgia of the '80s. Like they're these punky boy band guys. But if you think about it, it's nostalgic now. But it was Ocarant then, I know. and might have not worked. <laughs> that's right. such a good point. Space Punk's kind of got like a like a Back to the Future thing going on, right? Yes, exactly. It's got like a Back to the Future jacket, and that's kind of. And some Michael Jackson. Yeah, and some Michael Jackson. Totally, yeah. That's so true. It does. Maybe this is where we can start talking about the lighting design especially. Maybe this isn't. This combines with the lighting and the scenic design. Mm-hmm. Seems like we saw a lot of stagehands moving things around, eh? <laughs> yes. Like there was a, a lot of them and they were just moving everything. Now maybe it's just a convention that we've... We were okay with at the time, like... I was going to ask, is this before the creation of tracks and automation in a more significant way? 
that being said, I mean, Les Mis and Phantom were open and moving on tracks at that point, but... So is it like a budget thing, do you think? I think it's got, I think the budget for this had to be pretty small. If we look at the rest of the, um, rest of the evidence, a tiny cast, a tiny band, probably not costing, in relative terms, a ton of money to run on a week-to-week basis. Right. I would describe it as cheap and cheerful. Oh, yeah, okay. Design. Yeah. But not fun enough. Right. Not immersive enough. I think your description of a, a nice off-Broadway yeah. or like lower-scale regional production yeah. that didn't really get an upgrade for Broadway is accurate. Yeah. I think what could have been really fun and cool as a concept, which also might solve your issue with the transformation, Ryan, is that if they would have actually just used the bedroom the whole time, so... Mm, it just came to life. Exactly. So like a bathrobe for this... I think maybe if we, as a team, were to do this production, that might be the convention we would go with. Oh, I can't Because wait. it's like, how do you save money but still make it, like, exciting and innovative and fun? And that's, like, a very simple way. Yeah, if the, if the bedroom came to life, mm-hmm. that'd be cool. Instead, they took a, a fleece blanket off of a mine box. Yeah, and then they're like, fog, fog, put some fog <laughs> and there. And then they pushed a yeah. mine box to the back <laughs> of the stage. Yeah. And some lasers. There were a few laser yeah, lights. Yeah, there were some lasers. I guess, yeah. I guess it, it speaks to the sort of the overall challenge with the show is that it's like, it's only like sort of tongue in cheek. Like it's not yes. sure if it's meant to be or not. 100%. Yep. I would agree with that completely. And you can be sincere and tongue in cheek, but it's, it's, I think it doesn't fully know what it is. Oh yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the challenge it's facing on Broadway at this time as well. If it's, um, if it's playing against things like Phantom and Cats, this is the late 80s, early 90s. A lot of people are really into spectacle, mega musical. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if it's kind of straddling the line between a little bit of that, but definitely doesn't have the budget to hit that, but isn't going all in in, a, um, in another direction either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, man, obviously audiences aren't going to buy in. Yeah, because if you think that Little Shop of Horrors was, you know, still sort of recent at this point. It was definitely in people's heads. Absolutely. Yeah, it was around, you know, and that's the example of a campy but sincere type piece. Yes. And using a relatively a relatively low budget. Yeah. Mel Gusso, our our reviewer here, had some hopes and dreams for what this production would become. And in his 1987 review, he wrote, quote, If and when Starmites finally moves into a deserved extended engagement, high-tech special effects would certainly be appropriate. So he wrote that right. in 1987 about the off-Broadway run, and then we have now seen the 89 production, and clearly they didn't take his advice. Yeah, I mean, he obviously saw the potential and the possibility within the set and the design, but... Or you go the complete opposite way and use, like, all your theatrical magic to create a world... Right. ...that's not Starlight Express, right? Like, because yeah. that's also <laughs> yeah, around yeah, the same yeah. time. Right, right, right. I think we should put the two shows together and do Starmight Express. Starmight Starmite Express. Express. Jillian, you're onto something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, out of ten playbills, Ryan, how many monkeys are you giving the design? Uh, four... It's just disappointing to me, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm going to say three, because even though it's not a huge disaster, I think this is one of the major problems that hurt the show. I would go somewhere in between. How about a three and a half? And that averages us out. Oh, I'll drink to that. Woo! Liz Larson is a delight. Liz Larson is a delight. And a fascinating person, because she went on to a career doing, like, stepping into roles and um, doing standby work, and right? Mm-hmm. She got a Tony nomination for the Most Happy Fella revival in 92. Yeah. And then, yeah, she was on Law and Order. I enjoy when she transforms into... Uh... Bizarre yes. You guys, can I tell you, I was so confused watching this. It didn't click in for me for the longest time that um, Eleanor and Bizarre were two different people. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been halfway through Act 2. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> That's fair. I I had the script. I had the script beside me. To make it more confusing or less confusing, most high school productions use two different actors because they need to give more people parts. Oh, right. That makes sense. That would have been much better for me. Which makes sense until the, until until the, the end, end when yeah. it's supposed to be like she's switched right. places, but it's the same person. <laughs> and her mom doesn't notice that it's a new person. It's yeah. a different person. Exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So it works... Almost the whole time. <laughs> the um the other significant performance to me is um is Sharon McKnight. 
Mm-hmm. Who plays the mom and then plays Diva. It's fabulous. Yeah, she's a... Uh, she gets applause on her first entrance as Diva, right? That's right. Yeah. And I was like, geez, is this like someone, is this a super well-known like Broadway veteran at this point? And she's not. This is her only Broadway credit. I think she just made a name for herself in this role. Before and after this, she was doing cabaret work. Yeah, I think she I think she still does. Right. Um, and I agree. She's, uh, she's a lot of fun. She's great. I made the note of, was the Diva also a wrestler on GLOW? Great <laughs> question. Because <laughs> that's, that's the vibe I got. And I liked yes. it. I liked it. Totally. I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's such a vibe. Like she could have gone straight from that into like... She's like, I have a match now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the character's there and the costume is pretty much there. I would say that overall, the singing is actually really wonderful. Really beautiful sound from so many people. And even the ensemble work is actually quite, quite good. And my favorite thing about an ensemble is like a cast of of performers is when they take something seriously and they all took this seriously and to me i'm like that is an exercise and you did it absolutely good job but they're having fun and it's it's yeah stupid thing you say after you see something like it looks like you're having so much fun up there but i want to be in starmites yeah that's true i i do too actually um the banshees were all great i agree uh, yeah, not much to to report as far as the performances go. Yeah, solid performances. Okay, so maybe we can all get behind a pretty decent score here. And we're talking about people working their asses off to um, keep this production afloat. Out of 10 playbills for the cast performances. Eight. It's a solid eight for me. They're, they're working. Good job, performers. I feel very comfortable with eight. Good for them. Excellent work. Working their asses off. Let's hear it for actors. Yeah. No notes. <laughs> no notes. Yeah. Very few notes. <laughs> Should we talk about the Tonys? Yes, please. This is important because this is how Starmites initially came into our lives. In the past, um, when we were allowed to go into other people's houses, um, we would semi-frequently, a couple of times a year, find ourselves at someone's house um, having some drinks and watching old Tony Awards performances. Um, Ryan Siegel is a fantastic guest to have at this because he's watched a lot of old Tony Awards performances, and he is the one who initially showed me, at least, the Tony Awards performance for Starmites. Yes. Which is a batshit insane performance. It's amazing, though. It's amazing. <laughs> yes, that's a compliment. It's so crazy. Just to break it down in terms of movements, it starts with Angela Lansbury, who was the host that year. Introducing the number, and then it goes into the Starmites number. Like Then they sing the Starmites number, and they've got the lizard man who is revealed to be Shaka Shaquille O'Neal. And then it's a segue into um, Diva, yeah. Because the Banshees come in to introduce the Diva. <laughs> <laughs> but the way the Starmites, they do their final pose, and they sort of just like transition, it's like better than the transitions in the actual show. Yeah. <laughs> Legendary Tony Award performance. Very significant. The, the only show we have covered so far on this podcast to be nominated for Best Musical at the Tonys. Is it really? It took a slew of um, big old Tony noms. Took Best Musical nom, Best Leading Actor nom, Best Leading Actress nom for Sharon McKnight, Best Direction and Best Choreo nom. Six of them. It didn't win any of them. It's very fascinating because, you know, objectively, it sure didn't play that long. And based on our discussion, at least, it certainly isn't of a much higher quality than at least any of the other shows we've discussed. But what else was playing that year? It was a very bizarre year for the Tony Awards. It was a dark time for Broadway theater. So Jerome Jerome Robbins Broadway was uh, was eligible that year and Black and Blue. And then there was also the musical Legs Diamond, which was the Harvey Firestein show. Um, but that wasn't nominated for Best Musical, but it was running at the time. I think what we can say for sure about the Tonys is that because of a bizarre Tony year, because of just those couple of um, best musical noms, the best revivals, best revivals were Our Town, All Wilderness, Ain't Misbehaving, and Cafe Crown. So there's a a very weird um, selection to choose from as far as all these noms go. And thus, um, Starmites ends up taking some really strong noms. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very fascinating. Very fascinating year for the Tonys. And also for some context, like we, and we've mentioned this before in this 
uh, episode, but Phantom was running. It had opened about a year and a bit before. Yeah. Cats was running. Les Mis, a chorus line. Into the Woods ran until September of that year. Right. Like, these are just big, you know, well-done epics. Yeah. Or go see Phantom of the Opera, which is just its in its first year outside of its best musical win, right? Yeah. The other thing to note is that, like, when we look at the first half of 1989 it was a little bit slow I guess as far as productions and then it kind of picked up in the second half so we got Grand Hotel we got Meet Me in St. Louis we've got uh, like a Sweeney revival I think like just stuff really started to pick up toward the end of the year. It reminds me of if if I'm going to compare it to a Tony Awards in semi-recent memory it reminds me of the year that um it was like 2011 or something that Memphis won the Tonys and it was like Memphis American Idiot, and one more, and it was a very biz- small, there was another three. Fela. Was it Fela? Oh, that's right. Yeah, Fela, totally. That's exactly what it was. I remember being disappointed that uh, that Fela didn't take it. The nominating year didn't seem to actually represent what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. So, y'all, should Star Mites be a musical? 100%. It just, <laughs> I mean, I want to see it. Yeah, it's. I want to go see every high school production of it. I want to be in it. Do you think maybe they would have found more success if they had just tried to live off Broadway for a while? Yes, I do. Especially because, I mean, I don't, I wasn't alive in 89, but I think off-Broadway was more fun at that point. It just, you know, it was it was a place to be sort of a bit loopy and a bit silly. Mm-hmm. And we're discussing if this is, this is the off-Broadway where Little Shop of Horrors was an enormous hit, right? Yeah, that's a great point. And never transferred to Broadway. So should it, yes, it should be a musical. Maybe it shouldn't have been a Broadway musical. I agree. I agree with everything that you're saying. <laughs> it shouldn't have been a comic book, was also your argument. I would like this a lot more if we just ditched the comic book thing entirely. Yeah. And made it a dumb old sci-fi musical. Yeah. Not a comic book. <laughs> that's an interesting distinction. As someone that's a bit ignorant towards comic books, you'd see sci-fi and comic book as, as two different two different things. Absolutely I do. It's Because comic book refers so much to a medium rather than a genre. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So why are we, you didn't do anything with the design or with um, anything in the concept to actually indicate comic book. So why, why bother with it being a comic book? You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. Make it a, she gets sucked down like a Wonderland thing. She gets sucked into her mirror or whatever. Same deal. That's a, yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot more taking the comic book idea away from it and just making it a a goofy old thing. Just making it sci-fi. Yeah. So at at the end of our program, we like to sort of come to a general consensus about whether we believe that this show was a flop. So Paul, how do you describe a flop? You have a great way of wording it. A flop is this show did not do very well. Something about this production missed the mark entirely or multiple things about this production missed the mark entirely. And thus, this Broadway production was a flop. And then we also look at whether it might have been a bop. Was this production actually brilliant, but people didn't realize it at the time? Yeah. Or just a complete make it stop, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. Absolutely. Okay, Ryan, as our guest, what do you think? Flop, bop, or make it stop? Starmates for me is unfortunately a flop that could be a bop. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That should be a bop. That will be a bop. It will <laughs> be a bop. <laughs> I'm surprised to be saying it myself, but I totally agree. Um, it's a flop that yep. has so much potential to be a bop and is just pushing its way there. But I think this production, there's no question, flop. Absolutely. I agree. This production's a flop, but I will bop to it, this cast recording. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, we've had a lot of laughs today. Oh my gosh, have we ever. I've learned more about Star Mites than I ever, ever thought I would in my whole life. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for, thanks for being here, Ryan. It was incredible to have you. It was, it felt wonderful. I was so happy to be here. And I guess I'm like one of the only keepers of a bootleg of Star Mites probably in the world now. You are. Oh my gosh. You have a sacred responsibility. Hit me up at Ryan Siegel if you want a copy. <laughs> So listeners, if there's anything you want us to cover that's not Star Mites or Amelie or any of the rest of our 
body of work, please reach out to us. We are on Instagram at monkeys and playbills pod we have an email we accept carrier pigeons and contactless um drop-offs of goodies and comments please remember to rate (laughs) review and subscribe if you like this podcast tell some people you know that helps us a lot i think the last thing to say is please join us uh next time for our um our last podcast before a small hiatus that we're going to take we're going to do a very special christmas episode and discuss Not a show that has closed on Broadway uh, before 100 performances, but a show that has never run more than 100 performances consecutively on Broadway. We're going to dissect the Christmas special, How the Grinch Stole Christmas on Broadway. We are looking very forward to it. Absolutely. Join us then. Holiday special. Get your eggnog, (laughs) get your Christmas sweaters. Oh, have fun. We'll see you then. And thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for joining us for Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. If you have a show that you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch with us at monkeysandplaybillspod on Instagram or by emailing monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theater podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on How the Grinch Stole Christmas.